Alet Ashtar, servant of Akshapetef. By the gods, may you judge him who has recounted a false report about the harvest in the gate. I will appear, since he summoned me by the authority of the king. I will appear in court, and you will rule in favor of my case. Possible translation of the Hirbet Keifa Ostrakhan inscription. Late 11th or early 10th centuries BCE. Hello, and welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 4, The Kingmaker. Last episode, we covered the Israelite settlement in the Judges period, both in the Book of Judges and in the archaeological record. This time, then, we'll discuss the formation of the first Israelite state or two. Once again, we'll start with the biblical narrative before critiquing it and supplementing the traditional story with evidence from archaeology. So, without further ado... Let's jump into the narrative. If you're from the United States, or familiar with its history, you've probably heard of, and forgotten about, the Articles of Confederation. It's honestly a pretty interesting, yet forgettable period in our history. Before it comes the famous flag-wavy stuff, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Yorktown, all that. Then American history just basically skips ahead to 1789, and then we get the Constitution and, you know, the rest of American history. We mentally go straight from George Washington, General Extraordinaire, to George Washington, the President on the $1 bill. But nope, there were a solid eight years from 1781 to 1789 when the U.S. of A. had the Articles of Confederation and a President of Congress. You could argue that Samuel Huntington, a man whom Wikipedia just calls a Connecticut politician, was technically the first ever president of the United States. Ever heard of that guy? So why in the world am I blabbering on about the Articles of Confederation? Well, because the subject of today's episode is the Articles of Confederation of Ancient Israel, King Saul and the Early Monarchy. King David was the George Washington of the Israelites. He was quite literally the man who defeated Goliath and was considered the political ancestor of all future Judean kings. King David, and King Solomon for that matter, were everything. King Saul was just Ken. But the story of King Saul is an important one in the formation of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, even if, spoiler alert, we have no idea who the historical Saul even was. Last episode, we went over the archaeological evidence for the Iron Age I period, the time of the judges. Though we don't know exactly which figures lived, we can still get a decent understanding of the lives of the early Israelites and we'll soon be able to tell the story of the divided monarchies of Israel and Judah with relative ease, since the biblical narrative will become more reliable and the external sources more plentiful. This period will be known as the Iron Age II period, and we'll see a higher level of development in greater populations. But something had to have happened to turn the rural, sparsely populated Israel of the Iron Age I into the states of Israel and Judah of the Iron Age II. Someone had to have played the kingmaker. The Bible, of course, gives an account of this in the book of Samuel. Judges, the book before Samuel, covers a period of a couple hundred years and is only half as long as the book of Samuel. Right afterwards, the book of Kings covers almost 400 years. Judges and Kings are both intended to be chronicles of sorts, 
recounting the history of Israel since its founding until the Babylonian exile. In between them, however, Samuel describes just the events taking place within a span of under 50 years. The book of Samuel also goes into a lot more depth about the lives of just a few characters. When we reach the main narrative of the book of Kings, we'll be able to tell the story of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah to a lesser extent, mostly based on the biblical narrative itself. The book of Kings reads like a history, giving precise years of each king's reign and cross-listing regnal years between the two kingdoms. The book of Samuel, in contrast, is a lot less dry, but also contains less reliably historical information. In many respects, the book of Samuel gives us the national origin myth of the kingdom of Judah. The book's namesake, Samuel, takes a backseat for most of the narrative. He was the last judge of Israel. The first few chapters detail how his mother, Hannah, gives birth to Samuel after praying to be able to conceive a child. As with the judge Samson, in return for giving Hannah a son, the Israelite god requires that the child devote his life to the god's worship as a Nazarite, not shaving or drinking alcohol. Samuel does this and subsequently grows up to be an important leader in Israel. But the time of the judges is ending. The Israelites demand a king from Samuel, even though, as the book of Judges repeatedly stresses, the Israelite God is supposed to be their king. Meanwhile, Saul, a young, handsome, and extremely tall man, is looking for his father's lost donkeys, a symbol of kingship in ancient Israel. Unable to find the animals, he consults a seer, who happens to be the judge Samuel. Samuel does not help Saul find the donkeys, but instead crowns him as the first king of Israel. But Saul, as is often the case in the Deuteronomic history, deviates from his God's commandments. In one of the Bible's bloodiest passages, the God of Israel tells Saul to take no prisoners in his campaign against the Amalekites. Saul disobeys the order and takes the enemy king hostage and subsequently loses his God's favor. Samuel once again plays the kingmaker as the God of Israel guides him to a Judahite boy, David, who he anoints in secret as the next king of Israel. The majority of the rest of the book of Samuel is concerned with neither Samuel nor Saul, but rather with the upstart David. David, a shepherd boy and the youngest in his family, gains notoriety as a warrior during his famous fight against Goliath. The Philistines, waging war against the Israelites, send forth a champion to settle the battle in single combat. Their champion, Goliath, is the model of a warrior, and no Israelite can be found willing to square off against him. That is, until young David appears. Declining to use Saul's oversized armor, David chooses to use his own shepherd's gear, arming himself with just a sling and five stone pebbles. And, big surprise, David wins. Jealous of his throne, Saul then makes the rational decision to just kill David. However, Jonathan, Saul's son, loves David and conspires against his father to help David escape and survive. David's exploits to evade Saul take up the majority of the first half of the book of Samuel, with David always staying a step ahead of the fearful king. Once, Michal, Saul's daughter and one of David's wives, smuggles him out of the palace and uses a dummy to pretend David is sleeping. Incidentally, this dummy is one of the teraphim idols, presumably clay, which we discussed last time. Another time, 
Jonathan warns David of Saul's ill will by using a secret code whereby Jonathan would shoot arrows past his target to indicate that David would have to flee. After wandering throughout Judah, David finally corners Saul and convinces him of his peaceful intentions. The first half of the book of Samuel, known to Christians as 1 Samuel, then finishes with the death of King Saul. The Philistines attack the Israelites at Mount Gilboa in the corner of the central highlands, abutting the Jordan River Valley in the east and the Jezreel Valley in the north, a location too far northeast for the Philistines to have ventured in reality. During this battle, two of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, are killed, and Saul then takes his own life, ending the reign of the first king of Israel. The second half of the book of Samuel, then, is concerned with the reign of King David. Following his father's death, Saul's son Ishbosheth, also known as Ishbaal, claims the throne. The ten tribes of Israel follow Ishbosheth, but Judah supports David, who fights against his northern rival. After two years, David defeats and kills Ishbosheth, becoming king of all Israel. He rules for seven years in Hebron before defeating the Jebusites in Jerusalem and establishing the city as his capital. Most of the rest of the book of Samuel discusses David's wars and wives. In one famous incident, David sees a naked woman, Bathsheba, bathing on a nearby roof. He impregnates her and sends her husband Uriah, a Hittite man, to the front lines of the battle so that he would be the first to be killed in action. As punishment for David's transgression, the son that Bathsheba bears dies shortly after birth. However, she has a second son later. This one survives, and would grow up to become King Solomon. But David is far from monogamous, and has eight wives listed in the book of Samuel. He also, of course, then has many children, some of whom prove quite troublesome. In one episode, David's son Absalom kills his brother as justice for a rape that brother had committed. A few years later, Absalom then rebels against David. They fight another civil war, and David again wins, with Absalom being killed against the king's orders. The book of Samuel then concludes shortly before David's death, after which another war is fought over the succession, with Solomon, Bathsheba's son, eventually winning out. Unfortunately, there are as many mysteries in the story of Saul and David as there are around the origins of the Israelites. While archaeology can give us a great long-term understanding of a culture, it does a very poor job illuminating the lives of individuals. There are some historians that believe that the stories of Saul and David are largely true. Literary evidence has revealed that the book of Samuel was composed in a few phases, the last of which was the editing of the Deuteronomic Historian. But while the book was completed by the Deuteronomic Historian, parts are certainly older and may contain bits about the historical figures of Saul and David. Much of 1 Samuel, chapters 9 through 14, predate the Deuteronomic history. These chapters include, for example, the story of how Saul is chosen to be king while searching for his father's lost donkeys. Other stories, like David's victory over Goliath, were probably later additions by the Deuteronomic historian. But we still don't know when the earlier portions of the book of Samuel were composed. Some scholars argue that they contain reliable bits of information about the origins of the Israelite state. Others contend that David and Saul never existed at all, though we have definitive proof for David's existence at least. 
Some historians accept that David and Saul existed, but that the stories in the Bible are essentially completely fictional. Still more theorized that David and Saul were each kings, but from separate northern and southern traditions, with Saul having been king of the ten tribes of Israel, and David having ruled over just Judah. Debates also rage over how large and how developed David's kingdom was, and even when it existed. While we can't say almost anything about Saul and David the people with certainty, archaeology can reveal the changes that Israel is going through from the end of the 11th century through to the 9th century BCE. As we mentioned last episode, Herbet Radana was abandoned or destroyed around the end of the 11th century BCE. This was not an isolated case, however. Many rural villages throughout Palestine simply ceased to exist around the turn of the Iron Age 2A period. Most of the villages abandoned just before the turn of the millennium were clustered around the land of Benjamin, in the middle of the highlands to the north of the Judean hills and to the south of the Samarian ones. Saul himself was of the Benjamin tribe, so this could indicate some inaccuracy in the story of Saul, or historical memory of the importance of the Benjaminites in the Iron Age one to the Iron Age 2A transition. Archaeologists have not reached a consensus on why this abandonment occurred, but not at least without trying. Some scholars have posited that the Israelites took up a nomadic lifestyle, were drawn into new cities, or were otherwise pushed out of their homes by changing climate. These theories all have major issues, however. For example, we don't have evidence of a changing climate, nor do we see a changing population with more people taking up nomadism. There are two more plausible explanations, however. The first is that the Israelites were under attack. Throughout the book of Samuel, Saul and David have to fight the Philistines, the Israelites' arch-rivals. The Tanakh, in fact, blames the military threat of the Philistines for forcing Israel to become a monarchy. In this respect, the biblical history may indeed be correct. I know I sound like a broken record, but scholars debate whether or not the Philistines were at all a threat during the Iron One period, but quite likely they did menace the Israelites, both economically and militarily. If so, Philistine attacks could account for the widespread abandonment of Israelite villages at the end of the 11th century BCE. The other explanation is that the rural Israelites were forced out of their homes not by an external threat, but by an internal one. As I've mentioned before, ancient states were often glorified protection schemes that offered few benefits to the rural populace. Saul and David may have been little more than roving bandits, with loyal followers who served and returned for profit. Many people may have been coerced into cities, labor forces, or into the army by a new Israelite king or local chieftain. Later kings would organize expeditions to foreign lands and raise armies tens of thousands strong, but even this early, a growing state could have meant population redistribution. Of course, these two scenarios could have easily occurred in conjunction. The monarchies of Israel and Judah were what historians term secondary states, meaning that they had contact with other states and were thus influenced by them. The formation of the first territorial states in Palestine, therefore, cannot be considered in a vacuum. The right circumstances had to have been in place for the process to have occurred. On the one hand, Egypt to the south had lost its power, and did not rule Palestine with as tight a fist as it once had. This southern superpower had, until the Iron Age, suppressed any hope for the creation of a territorial state in Palestine. 
But without any outside influence, little could force the rural Israelites into a more rigid hierarchical and urban society. The Philistines seem to have provided this push, menacing the Israelites just enough that they begin to band together and organize themselves for their protection. Whether this organization was bottom-up or coalesced around a figure like Saul or David, we can't say, but it certainly was happening in the 11th and 10th centuries BCE. In fact, the wave of site abandonment in Benjamin during the 11th century BCE was just the first of two. In the following century, villages throughout the highlands were abandoned and some new ones cropped up. More importantly, however, cities also started to appear in the 10th century BCE. The lowland coastal plains had always been home to cities, most recently Philistine ones, but an urban culture had never really existed in the highlands. This changed for the first time at the start of the first millennium BCE. For the archaeology of the Iron Age 2a period, two cities are incredibly important, Jerusalem and Chirbet Kayafa. We'll save our discussion of Jerusalem for a couple episodes from now, and instead take a close look at the archaeological site of Chirbet Kayafa. Last episode, we took a detailed look at a village typical of Israel in the Iron Age 1 period. This time, we'll look at an exceptional site from the beginning of the Iron Age 2a period, perhaps the first ever true city of the Israelites. It's also a place that is often not mentioned in publications, since Yusef Garfinkel of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem only began to unearth the site in 2007, just after the zenith of research in the 1990s and early 2000s. Kayafa, perched on a hill in the Shvilah, the Judean foothills, was an impressive city for its time, despite having only been occupied for about 20 years. The wall we encountered in Khirbet Rodana was built of field zones, small rocks that get in the way of plows when tilling the land. Kayafa, on the other hand, was fully surrounded by a wall built of somewhere in the range of 100,000 stones, some measuring up to 5 tons. Access to the city was provided by two impressive gates, leading to the identification of Kayafa with the biblical city of Sha'araim, whose name literally means two gates. Abutting the wall on the inside were houses presumably belonging to the inhabitants of Khirbet Kayafa. Near the center of the enclosed area was a rectangular stone building measuring 120 by 145 feet, or 37 by 45 meters, which the site's archaeologists believed to have been a fortress. Rooms that were probably used for religious activities were also found. Moving on to the material finds, the ceramics found at Khirbet Kayafa were also more impressive than those from Khirbet Radana. The same assembly of storage jars and cooking pots were found, alongside more specialized vessels, like ceramic chalices and baking trays. There were also foreign ceramics, including some Philistine pottery, and a few pieces from Cyprus. As we'll discuss a bit later on, two locally made ceramics also bore proto-Canaanite inscriptions that could be called Hebrew. Possibly the most important find, however, were a few small olive pits. Fruit pits are fortunately made of organic material, meaning that they can be used for precise radiocarbon dating. When analyzed, it is found that they dated with a 78% probability between 1015 and 969 BCE, during the supposed reign of King David. Some scholars, most notably Israel Finkelstein, have proposed shifting the end of the Iron Age 1 period 
and thus the development of a state in Israel, to the end of the 10th century BCE. And the radiocarbon dating of these olive pits at Hirbet Kayafa, to my mind, presents the best evidence against the so-called Loke chronology. The last thing we need to note about Hirbet Kayafa are the inscriptions that excavations have unearthed. The second one found is relatively unremarkable. Characters etched along the face of a large storage container read Ishbaal ben Beda or Ishbaal son of Beda. We've met in different Ishbaal before. Ishbaal ben Shaul, the son of Saul, who was the second king of Israel, according to the biblical account. The first inscription, however, is truly incredible. It is written in ink on a roughly square ostracon, or pre-broken shirt of pottery, measuring about a half a foot on either side. The inscription contains about 64 letters and arranged in five lines of text. Unfortunately, what these letters are and what they spell is a bit tricky to answer. Numerous attempts at translation have been made with a wide range of interpretations. One pessimistic scholar has even suggested that the ostracon was used for scribal practice and that the inscription means almost nothing. The most recent study, however, seems to have been the most fruitful. In 2021, Brian Donnelly Lewis published previously unseen images of the inscription in a variety of wavelengths of light, allowing for better reconstruction and comparison of the characters. I quoted his proposed translation of the inscription verbatim in the introduction quote. According to Donnelly Lewis, the ostracon, which should be read left to right, recorded a legal summons. Someone apparently made a false report concerning the harvest, so a man named Alet Ashtar appeared in court in Hirbet Kayafa to either defend himself or to prosecute the matter. The inscription may also contain the first ever reference to a king in Israel, since it contains the word Melech, though Donnelly Lewis was cautious to make this claim, writing that the letters may have been part of a name, Bidmelech. Regardless, the inscription combined with the archaeology of Kirbet Kayafa reveals a society with developing legal and scribal traditions, a hierarchical social structure, an urban culture, and possibly even a fledgling state in Judah ruled by a king. You may choose to believe that there was a king, possibly David or Saul, ruling all of Israel at the time. Or maybe there were local chieftains who strong-armed their way into dominating regions of the highlands of Palestine. Whatever you believe, the turn of the first millennium BCE was a turbulent or exciting time for the Israelites, depending on how you look at it. For many, the threat of the Philistines or of a local strongman may have been incredibly harmful, disrupting their farming communities and their relatively egalitarian, if patriarchal, social structure. For others, urbanization may have been exciting, with increased writing and trade circulating new ideas and products. Ambitious men and women may have found new opportunities in emerging cities that would have been unavailable in the rural highlands. And for a select few, the Iron Age 2A period provided the chance to increase their own wealth and power to make a play at becoming kings. Now that we've reached the formation of Israelite states, we're actually going to pause the narrative for an episode or two to take a look at the broader context of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. No state exists in a vacuum, so I think it'll be worthwhile to visit the neighboring territories of Ammon, Moab, and Edom, Israel's closest cousins. We'll spend some more time getting to the Philistines and their ways of life, since they are often just seen as the enemy in Jewish histories. 
We'll then look a bit farther afield and check out the developments of the Phoenician city-states, the Kingdom of Aram Damascus, and the heavyweights of the period, Egypt and Assyria. The world of the Near East changed a lot since the late Bronze Age collapse, and the picture we'll see of the Iron Age will look quite a bit different from the one we saw in the first episode. The peoples we will visit will also play an important role in the narrative to come, so it'll help to introduce them first. Until then, you can reach us by email at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com, or you can find us at our humble website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com. In addition to the usual images up there, I've also started posting transcripts along with each episode, if you ever want to see those. We're also on Instagram at, you guessed it, History of the Jewish People. We'd also really appreciate it if you left us a rating, or, even better, a review on whatever podcasting service you use. Ratings help more people find the show, and they help me know if I'm doing a good job or not. Reviews help even more since you can actually tell me what you think of the show. Anyway, that's enough of a plug for now. The music for this episode was, as always, written and produced by Jake Bashaw. And finally, thank you all for listening, and I hope you tune in next time for episode 5, The Neighbors. (laughs) 